0: Anyway, uh, well, if you're new with us today, we have been studying Philippians. Um, we have been together as a church, I think for 20 years, we were planted by our beloved pastor Fred and, uh, and his wife, and so we are um, considering as a church kind of where our next uh, phase of ministry is going to come from, how we're going to be able to uh, equip ourselves to minister to the community, and so Philippians is a perfect place to kind of find our cue and to think about what the next 10 years of ministry looks like and how our lives together as a church should be governed by the Word of God. And so um, I'm excited today and intimidated to pre- preach from probably one of the most popular passages in Christendom, Philippians 2. Um, I will not do it as much justice as it deserves, I will tell you that. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, I don't care. I sat in construction dust, and there's dust on my bum, but there's dust on your bum too, so we'll give each other <laughs> grace, okay? So if you will, just uh, join me in prayer as we get ready to open God's Word. Father God, we thank you for your grace. God, as we open up this Word, Father, I pray people will come to it. Father, for st- some, this will be a stone that they will break upon For some, this will be a pillow that they'll land on. For some, this will be bread that will fill them up. And for others, this will be a call to fast from pride and self-exaltation. However your spirit sees fit, Lord, to apply this text, I pray, Father, that those in here that are proud will be humbled. Those who are humbled will feel exalted. And, Father, in the end, that you will teach us as a church how to live as your people, And we pray this in your son's name, amen. Amen. Paul's heart, whether he was free or in chains, was with the church. This is made clear in letters such as 2 Corinthians. There Paul listed his trials, his hardships, and all the things he had undergone, and he added in his letter, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Anxiety for all the churches. Well, what was Paul anxious about? I don't think it's too hard to imagine Paul thinking about all the future arguments, the dissensions, the church splits, the petty fights that would divide God's people and draw attention away from the gospel. Sadly, Christians are not immune to such things. We like anyone else can fight over things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. Satan's trophy room. I just want you to imagine if you ever been to someone's trophy if you haven't been, go to bond 's house. So, Satan's trophy room is filled with dead churches that did not die over fights of doctrine that did not die over fights of of truth and gospel centrality. They didn't die over that. It's filled with corpses of dead churches that died over carpet colors, styles of music, programs, policies, traditions, and other such pettiness. Knowing he cannot kill the church with the sword, Satan kills the church with splinters. Splinters. He can't kill us with the sword. He's tried. He slices and he dices and we multiply and we grow. He stabs and he wounds, he imprisons, and yet he can't stop us. So what better than to send a splinter such as the paint color on the wall? I mean, after all, what's going to give him more credit? That he's able to kill the church with a sword or with a splinter? A tragedy of tragedies, if you look at church history... If you look at the history of our church, if you look at the history of churches all around the nation, nothing kills the church like an individual's personal pride, conceit, and self-ambition. Nothing outside of the church can kill us. We are indestructible from the outside. But internally, our pride can starve us. Our bide for selfish ambition our empty glory our personal our personal offense at the way someone talks about us our assumptions our divine right those things are the things that will kill a church quicker than anything on the outside in philippians 2 1 through 11 we hear this all-important message of how we are to do life as a church it's so important now, especially as we're growing. As it, This is perfect because this is the last Sunday with these chairs, with this floor. We're getting new carpet next week. If you thought about giving an opinion about it, just listen to the sermon first. Submit it in writing. Give it to Dana and Barry and to Brandon. And then, you know, after that, we'll talk about carpet color. So this is perfect timing as Paul teaches what is expected of gospel-centered Christians and how these expectations are formed by considering the Lord of the church himself, Jesus Christ. So let's set the context. Paul's main exhortation, his main instruction so far, his, his command so far in this letter in, in, to the Philippians has been this. In Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In this, Paul sets his vision for the local church. Believers unified around the gospel, living a life that is consistent with the gospel's claims, and striving as a single unit, side by side, for the gospel's advance. Doesn't that sound nice? Everybody moving together, moving ahead, pushing forward for the gospel. The church is to be a community centered on, founded on, living for the good news that Jesus has come to save sinners and put an end to sin and death and everything in this fallen world. And to restore people. Who have been separated from God and to give them reconci- reconciliation back to the creator of the universe. That is what we are to find our center on. Philippians 2, 1-11 through 11 pushes forward that life that is worthy of the gospel. It explains further how we're to do that. How the church is to be unified in this gospel centrality. You see that in verse 1 when it says so. Well, you don't begin a conversation like that, Right? So, there's typically a cause, right? So what is he connecting it to? Well, it goes back to that command. If you want to live a gospel-centered life, if you want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, therefore, you will do these things. So, you will do what he's about to say. Everything he's about to say is going to unpack a life worthy of the gospel. So if you reject these things and you think that these things are not for you, you're ultimately rejecting a life worthy of the gospel. Does that up the stakes enough for us? Like this is a life worthy of the gospel that we're talking about. So, joy together, serving one another, gospel centrality all of this is wrapped up into one textual package here in Philippians 2. It's divided into two parts, as you'll see in your notes, if you were able to get notes when you came in. We have verses 1-4, through which focuses on our calling to sacrifice for others. And then you get verses 5 through 11, which draws attention to the Savior who sacrificed himself for us. So you've got part one, our mandate, right? And then part two, our model. And the message in this is clear. Serve others humbly, because Christ has served you in a far greater way. Now, Paul lays out this mandate in verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's working with an if-then progression. And what's interesting about this is it's all rhetorical. He says, if there's any encouragement, or the Greek word comfort, in Christ, Now, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, Paul, stop for a moment. Of course there's comfort in Christ, right? That's rhetorical. If there's, what do you mean, if there's comfort in Christ? Of course there's comfort in Christ. Well, he continues, if there's any comfort and consolation from love, don't you feel comforted when someone loves you? Don't you feel consolation from love? Of course there's consolation from love. Of course there's comfort in love and affection. What about fellowship in the Spirit? How many Holy Spirits are there? Well, there's only one. That means that everyone that has the Holy Spirit, guess what? There's fellowship in the Holy Spirit. It's a rhetorical question. So he's basically saying, if these things are true, which we all know they are, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Have you ever thought of Your desire for unity with other believers as a reflection of the truth you claim to believe. I'm going to step on some toes today because I'm preaching in America. Mm -hmm. We have this individual mindset, right? That God has come to save an individual by themselves and that heaven belongs to me. I have my own square acre of it. And therefore, my relationship with the Lord is what matters. Who cares about everybody else? We're going to see that the Bible blows that mentality out of the water. How you view God's people is a very clear, visible expression of your health in the belief and faith of Jesus Christ. Undeniably indivisible. We we have got to get here as a church That the way we view each other, the way we talk about each other, the way we are suspicious about each other, the way we don't like each other, the way we gossip about each other, the way we break each other down, the way we bite and devour one another, all of that speaks to how we believe about Jesus Christ. Indivisibly connected with the gospel. So it has real application here. If these things are true, if there's comfort in Jesus, then we will be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, complete my joy, that's what he says. It reveals his depth for the longing. It's like, I cannot be completely joyful until I know that you are unified. This is a true pastor's heart here. A a true pastor that has a Christ-like heart desires nothing more than the people he pastors to be unified. And not just unified, but to be unified around the right things. One clear evidence, the one thing that would bring a planting pastor and then a following pastor, the greatest joy is to know that the people that they planted and the people that they pastored are together for the gospel. That's the one thing that will bring him joy. Now, unified around what, though, right? Because we can be unified al- around a lot of things, right? I, how many Dallas Cowboy fans are there in here? All of them. All, all of them. Okay, wow. <laughs> Some of you may not be willing to admit it. How many of you have a, share a love of hiking and camping? How many of you share a love of coffee roasting and drinking? Okay, there you go. Good. All right, so... We can be unified around a lot of things. We could have Dallas Cowboy Sunday where everybody wears a Dallas Cowboy jersey. We could have Coffee Sunday where everybody, whether they like it or not, drinks it in the way that God intended, and that's completely black and made from the hand of your own pastor. <laughs> but ultimately, that's not the unity that Paul's talking about, is it? Are we unified because we like the same sports team? Are we unified because we like the same things? See, I I, I feel like in our American version of unity, we feel like unity is everyone who is just like me, which is not the unity that the Bible has in mind whatsoever. It is a very particular unity, nothing external to it. It is an internal unity that is a mark of the church's growth and its maturity. Now, number one, he desires that they be of the same mind. Mind is your interest, your your personal intent, and your attitude. That's what it means by mind in Greek. Your intent and your attitude. Literally what you want and how you are. Okay? Your intent and your attitude. He wants everyone to be of the same mind. He's not saying, I want everyone to... Do group think, where we're just going to say all your unique thoughts are out of here. We're all going to think the same way. When everyone speaks, they're going to say the same thing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that at the end of the day, with all of our analytical thinkers, our emotional thinkers, our abstract thinkers, our critical thinkers, our concrete thinkers, and so on, everyone has the same intention. The abstract thinkers think with the same intention as the concrete thinkers. The emotional thinkers think with the same intention and the same motivation and the same attitude as the rationalistic thinkers. And that's what? That Christ be glorified, that the gospel be seen as worthy. Can you imagine if everyone in their unique mindset and their unique thinking capacity thought around that same central point? that Christ is worthy, the gospel must be magnified. Sadly, most of us don't want the same thing. We're not motivated by the same thing. Our personal attitude doesn't matter as somebody else's attitude toward us. And yet, the gospel calls us in all of our diversity and in our uniqueness to have a one-track mind that Jesus be glorified above all else. Second, Paul desires that believers will be of the same love. Now, what does he mean by the same love? I don't know. It could be the same type of love, that we love each other all in the same way, or the same manner of love. It could even be the same object of love, meaning having Christ unified together as our same central affection. Paul envisions a community that is gathered around the very same affection. In other words, as a church, if someone were to ask us on a lie detector test for 200 people what we love, the same answer would be Jesus Christ and his gospel. It wouldn't be, we love accolades, we love Dallas Cowboys, we love tacos, we love this, we love that. It would be that we are gathered around that particular affection for Jesus Christ. That particular love is what is our center of gravitas, right? That is, that is right at the center of who we are. Is a love for Jesus. At the end of the day, you may like beards. You may be able to only grow a goatee. You may not be able to grow anything. You might like gray hair. You might like brown hair. You might like blue shirts. You might like green shirts. You may wear shoes. You may not wear shoes. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. One fish, two fish, three fish, blue fish, or whatever the Dr. Seuss is, we all gather around the same love for Jesus Christ. That's what he says about the same love. Right? Whatever kind of fish that you are. You are gathered here, I hope, not because you found a lot of people that love the same types of food or the same types of policies or the same types of programs, but because you are gathered here with people who, at the end of the day, love Jesus. Otherwise, you're here for the wrong reason. Third, Paul also desires for believers to be in full accord. A literal translation of the Greek would be united in spirit. Knit together. Right? We, we hear of, uh, one, one, group of friend, one group of friends in Scripture that were, were knit in soul. You remember David and Jonathan? It's as if their souls were knit together. Now the word implies that they're welded or knit together in such a way that if they divide, it's going to damage both of them. Can you imagine being a part of a church where everyone who is gathered because of their love of Christ is so knit together that if it fell apart, everyone would die. Everyone would be damaged. That is the kind of relationship that Paul envisions for the church. This kind of, you just feel like your soul is knit to these people. You feel as if you are a part of the fabric you pull the thread of you out of it and then all of a sudden it's changed or it's damaged the quilt altogether. That's what he wants. He wants us to be knit together, to have bonds that are unbreakable, to be indivisible. Finally, Paul desires for believers to be of one mind. Now this sounds a bit redundant. They he just say to be of the same mind. Well, whereas the same mind spoke of having the same gospel-centered intentions and disposition and attitude, one mind speaks more of the same direction. Okay, it's the goal, the same goal, right? Uh, Paul speaks of having a unified direction, of living a life together that is directed toward the singular goal of the gospel. Now remember, Paul's context is a life worthy of the gospel. So to be worthy of the gospel as a church, we all have to be heading in the same direction. Where are we going? Where is all this heading to? What is our telos, our destination, our final, uh, our final place that we're trying to reach? What is it? Are we all spread out, going in different directions, or are we going in the same direction? Which I hope, in your mind, is the day of Christ, when the clouds roll back like a scroll. And you see you and everyone around you on their knee praising the Savior. That's, isn't, that, isn't that the direction we're supposed to be heading? Isn't that where, where all this is going? Is that we, we will give up our pastors, our politicians, our presidents, and submit under the true shepherd king? Or are we thinking about business plans? heading to make this place the best 501c3 that Texas has ever seen? Are we bringing our worship ministry to be the best choral instrumentality that you have, I don't even know if that's a word, but that you have ever experienced in southern United States, that people pay us to come hear our choir? That's not our direction though, is it? Our direction is life under the king. Amen. Life For and with Jesus Christ. Now, hearing Paul's message clearly, Christians are called to a greater unity than the superficial unities found in anything else. Our unity should not be built on our favorite type of music, a beloved preacher, which I hope I'm that to you, but I may not be, it's fine. Um, Sentimental feelings toward a program. You know, you know how many people, you know, come to churches because we have a want or whatever. I'm I'm glad they come because of a want I hope that's not the reason they feel unified with other believers. Do people come because of a program? Or is it, Christian unity has nothing to do with a favorite political party, right? Right. Surely people could, at the end of the day, vote for different people and still gather under the name of Jesus, right? Because isn't his name above all names? It's not the same coffee preferences, right? Well, they don't have decaf coffee, right? It's not a deep-set tradition. We're unified purely around the gospel of Jesus Christ, and anything else we think unifies us is not unity. It's a fake central, it's a fake center, and fake centers are going to cause you to fall apart. Okay, the real center is on Jesus Christ. Nothing else keeps Christians bonded together like the gospel. Nothing keeps Christians bonded together like the gospel. I can guarantee you we could start vetting people at the front door. Are you contemporary or a hymnist? And I guarantee you we could fill this church with contemporaries or hymnists. We can create a service for both of them. And guess what? Five minutes later, we're going to have to create a new entry-level test just to protect that unity. So, if we're going to be unified, we're going to be unified in these things on Jesus Christ and on nothing else. And I think this should help us evaluate our own division, right, as a church. Let's just get honest. We're a family here. We we love each other. It's most of us. Um, and and so let's just let's just get down to the root. Let's diagnose why do we divide so often. Tragically, more often than not, what has caused divisions between two people, between Christians in the same body who have the same Lord, is two things. Number one, they don't both have the same intentions. Right? right? Number two, they're not motivated by the same things. And then number three, they love completely different things. If you want to see proof of this, that disunity, by and large, in church, comes from secretly selfish intentions. Okay, that You can put glossy words on it. I just, I just want us all to have excellence. I, I just want us all to do whatever you glossed it over. The fact that division between Christians come is ultimately from secretly selfish intentions and wrongly placed affections. There's a word of God for this in James 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? He just asked it outright. Why do you fight each other? Why do you fight each other? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Literally, what gives you pleasure? That's, the, the Greek word is the same word of hedonism. Whatever it is that gives you pre- pleasure, brings you pleasure. Is it not the fact that you are at war over what brings pleasure? Your desire, or your lust, it's the same word, your lust, and you do not, you lust, and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and it's the same word as zeal, zealous, you covet, you're zealous and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's hard to argue with that, right? He just just sums up every Christian fight. What causes fights and quarrels? Why do husbands and wives fight so much? Well, is it not that they're the things that they think bring them pleasure at war? They had a war over pleasure, right? This is what I need to be satisfied. Well that extends to the church. What brings us pleasure? What should bring us pleasure? What should bring us satisfaction? What should our desire be? What should be the longing of our hearts? What should be we should be zealous for? Well Jesus and the gospel is the obvious answer. But the honest answer is far from that, isn't it? It's far from that. Church splits, like I've said before, are not caused by policies, budget decisions, or changes. They're not caused by changes. Lots of things change. Ovilla's changing. Your house changes. Your family changes. Everything changes. It's not the reason why people give up on each other and walk away. It's not changes. It's not that things are different somehow. Church splits happen when people do not keep their passions, literally what they want, and desires in check. When their motivations and their affections, Affections drift away from the gospel, which happens to me all the time. I, I, don't know if I don't know if I'm the only one that does that, but my desires are not always purely on the gospel. And there's a constant daily repentance that has to happen. But the moment that that desire begins to drift is the moment that my heart is not focused on the same passion that everybody else should be focused on. This is why Paul calls Christians to the same mind, especially with what we want and what our intentions are. Why are you here? What do you want from this church? That's just an honest question to lob out there. Every individual, why are you here? What do you want? Because if the answer is not Jesus Christ and Him glorified, you don't want what a gospel-centered community wants sure you can have differences of opinion there's all these other tertiary matters right but at the end of the day if we don't want the same thing and not going in the same direction and we don't love the same thing we will divide and we will die he goes on to clarify how exactly do we do these things well here's some here's some real concrete application for you concrete thinkers Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a further explanation of how to have the same mind, same love, same accord. He says, first, don't do anything of selfish ambition. Well, what's selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the rat race mentality, right? It's, it's, I've got a desire, and I'm going to get it even if I have to push you down. That is selfish ambition. We see it in the corporate work all the time, don't we? When we want something more than we care about other people, we are willing to push them aside, knock them over, trip them, whatever it is. It's a rat race mentality. Ambition itself is not necessarily bad. We're called to be very ambitious people. God made us that way. But ambition rightly placed is what God has in mind. Ambition for His glory, for what's important to Him. Selfish ambition is working to win the competition. I'm better. I'm the best. I've got better toys. I've got a better reputation. I want to gain more recognition. Selfish ambition turns friendships into feuds. How many friendships have you had turned into feuds? Typically, it's because of selfish ambition. It turns what was once joyful into jealousy. It turns relationships into rivalries. And in the end, it is nothing more than self-exaltation. But then he says, do nothing from conceit. It comes from the same mentality. Whereas selfish ambition asks, what can I do for myself for my own advantage? Conceit asks, what kind of glory can I get from the ambition, adva- the advantage to my ambition, right? It, what can I get from what I do? Now, it's interesting because the Greek word for uh, conceit is actually empty glory. It's an empty glory hog. Empty glory is misplaced glory, it's pseudo glory, it's from people. When we do things because of this, we're seeking empty glory because this doesn't go very far. It lasts for a few minutes and then it stops. And if it goes too long, typically it's awkward, right? Have you ever been to a play and it's like, come on people, when is this going to be over? They did a good job, let's move on, you know. It's It's empty. It's empty. Now, we, we should recognize people who work hard. I'm not saying that. We should thank people who work hard. We, but typically, those people that are, are worthy of that thanks and that gratitude are not people who are doing it for that. We are empty glory hogs. And Paul says not to be so. When we seek empty glory, we seek external accolades for ourselves, and that's it. Not glory for the only Son of God. Now, instead of doing things out of selfish ambition or for empty glory, Paul calls believers to a better way. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, to a Greco-Roman world, which is not much different than our postmodern world, this command comes with a bite. You mean I am actually supposed to treat other people as if they are more important than me? I'm supposed to yield on the freeway? That would cause wrecks in Texas. I'm supposed to act like other people's interests and other people's well-being is better than mine. But that's exactly what he's saying. This is the type of mentality that would lead a man to die for someone else. This is the type of mentality that would lead a man to pick up a cross for somebody else. This is a type of mentality that when at the end of the day there's nothing in it for him, he would take nails in his wrists and hands and the cat of nine tails on his back and the crown of thorns. What was was in that for him? Counting others more significant than yourselves. Second, Paul says, let each of you look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Put simply, what is best for us becomes secondary the moment we are around somebody else. What is best for us becomes secondary. We tend to think with this, what's in it for me? What's the benefit? Don't we? It's just human nature. It's just human nature. Everything's clouded with that mixed motivation. What's in it for me? What kind of benefit can I get? But for a Christian, the benefit's in the actual serving. It's in watching others progress toward Jesus. It's in watching others get glimpses of their Savior. That's where the benefit is. You might not get a gift card. You might not get applause. You might not get recognition. You might not get a title. You might not get people who talk about what you did for years. But the reward is in the serving. The reward is knowing that, that it happened. Now, this was my favorite part of VBS week. I knew that nobody in charge... I just hearing it and listen to it. Nobody in charge is doing it for the accolades. They're all talking about how these kids know Jesus better. We had kids that came from families that in the traditional church, they would never have sh- shadowed our footstep, our, our doorstep. Praise God that we have people coming to church to hear the gospel. And to see that progression, and to see that happening, and to see that good being done, that excites gospel-centered leaders. But others' interest before yourself. And Paul modeled this. He says, far better. I'm, I'm far more interested in being with Jesus than being with you. It would benefit me far greater to just die and go to heaven than to continue suffering in this pit in Rome. But he says, but it's better for you if I stay. He clearly, clearly is thinking about other people. Now, having read Paul's mandate for the church, it's important for us to continue to assess. Are we a community that seeks to be impassioned by God's truth? Are we drawn together by this invisible force that we don't even really understand how it works, but this gospel just bringing us together, the fact that Jesus died, he was buried for me, and he rose again. Is that what draws us together? When we do things, are we thinking about the recognition we're going to get? Are we thinking about the memorials we've made? Right? We did that. We've done this. We made that. We colored this. We painted that wall. We put down that carpet. And then when it has to get changed for some reason or another, do we get offended that our memorials are now being wiped out? Or are we excited? that the gospel is moving forward in another generation with this church. I mean, we've got all kinds of new, right? We've got new logos, we've got new policies, we've got new ushers, we got new, uh, you know, being a non-administrative guy, I'm, trust me, you're sick of the new, I'm sick of the new, okay? But at the end of the day, what's exciting is that this church is outfitting itself to take the gospel for the next decade and for the next 50 years. That there will be a church on this hill, Lord willing, if we stay centered on the gospel, being a presence in this community, and people that we don't even know their name, children not even born, are going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in VBSs to come. Can we get excited about that? (laughs) We'll change the logo again, I promise you. Give us 10 years. The walls will be painted. If you want them painted quicker, just run up them, okay? Just scuff them up. But one thing that won't change is the fact that we are here for a mission. And that mission is that the gospel be named among people who don't worship God. Now, I I know the fallenness of my own heart, my own pride right? I have put things in this church. Um, after, Fred, after Fred retired, I've, I've built new things, and one day I'll either retire, or die, someone will shoot me, or whatever, and people will replace those things. So I know in my own fallenness and pride, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know if I'm capable of this kind of attitude. Am I capable of keeping the gospel centered? Well, surely we all understand we can't do it perfectly, can we? But Paul seems to anticipate that because he gives this mandate without blinking, and says, this is what you are to do. This is what I expect you to apply. And then he comes back around and gives us a model. I know you can do it because you have a Savior who did it. I know you can be this way because you have a Savior who is this way. You have the mandate, and you have the model. You have everything you need. Go in dependence. Follow him. Which is exactly what he kicks off in verse 5 when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now your translations might say something else. It might say which was, uh, which, is, which was Christ, the mind which was Christ. Uh, yours might say have this attitude. Whatever it is, it's the same idea. Christ lived this way and therefore you are too. Christ was like this. Think about what his attitude was like going to the cross. Think about what his love was like going to suffer and die for us. And that is your marching orders. Take what was his and make it yours. First, there's three specific things. When we look at um, Christ's standard first, instead of seeking, seeking empty glory, Jesus did what? Emptied himself. He doesn't seek conceit, that empty glory. He emptied himself. Verses 6 and 7 elaborate. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of men. He goes all the way back to his pre-existing glory. Do you realize who Jesus was before he came? He was the sovereign son of God. He was the prince seated at God's right hand. He was the Lord of all. He has received glory. He was the word who was with God and the word who was God. There's lots of debate about how he emptied himself and what that means. I don't think it means that he emptied himself of his divine identity. He didn't stop being God when he came. He was still the very sovereign son of God, the eternal word of God. I don't even think it means that he emptied himself of his divine attributes and power. We still see Jesus retaining authority over the wind and the waves, over sickness and death, and over forgiveness of sins itself. So it doesn't mean he emptied himself of anything that is crucial to him being God. What did he empty himself of? The right to be treated like God. Now that's powerful. Can you imagine being God in flesh, knowing who you are down to the T, knowing that this whole thing is your eternal plan and was built by your word as you're getting smacked in the face by the person you nurtured as a baby? Can you imagine? Can you imagine emptying yourself of the right of being treated like God as you're being nailed to the tree that you watched over as it was planted in the ground. You don't understand who I am. I am Dr. Jackson and you will treat me as such. (laughs) Jesus emptied himself of all that. He doesn't seek that empty glory. He emptied himself. Who do you think made the muscles and the arm movement and the biceps that did this motion? Who do you think made the voice box of the people who cried out, crucify, crucify, crucify? My goodness, people. This is the Lord of the universe. Emptying himself of the right to be treated as such. Gosh, I'm a pathetic creature. He doesn't hold those things with a clenched fist, does he? It says that he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. You will treat me as God and I am not letting go of that right. No, he holds it with an open hand. He holds it with an open hand and he gave it up. He is the first king in all of existence who willingly dethroned himself to die in the pit of a slave for us. Second, instead of seeking his own interest, Jesus looked out for the interests of others. How did he do this? Verse 8 says it. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the what? To the point of death. And not just death, but even death on a cross. Paul's not trying to hide his amazement here. It's not just that he was willing to die. It's that he did die. It's not just that he did die, but it was the way he died. He died a form of death that was reserved only for the lowest of lows, for the scum of the earth, for criminals and slaves. Roman citizens were not to be crucified. The high king of the universe is killed in that way. Why? Well, it's because that was the way that we would have our interest saved. What's our best interest? Forgiveness of sins. Eternal life. What he was interested in, what he wanted, we all know he didn't want to go to the cross, right? When he prayed, he said, Father, if there's any other way, right? Let this cup pass from me. He wanted to do the will of the Father. But I think we'd be foolhardy to say he actually wanted to, the splintery cross. He wanted it because of whose interest he died for. He wanted it because of the people he bled for. He wanted it because of you. And yet we're still here after all of that knowledge asking what's in it for me. Third, Instead of exalting himself, Jesus received his exaltation from God. Verses 9-11 through talk about this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You hear that? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess... That Jesus is Lord. Now all this is, this is talking about a greater story, right? Joseph is humble. His brothers are prideful. God brings down his brothers and humbles them and exalts Joseph. Dave, uh, Goliath is prideful. God brings down Goliath and exalts David. Saul, prideful. He goes down. David goes up. This, there's an ultimate redemptive work going on where God levels it, Right? Those who are prideful come down. They go down. Those who are humble go up. They're exalted. That is God's work. It's a great reversal. You know what that means? I don't want to be exalted here. Because whoever's exalted here goes down later. Let me bow to whoever I need to bow to. (laughs) Because God's in this great reversal work. Now what's amazing about all this is there's really two two things that it has to do with our attitude when we consider that God exalted Christ. Number one, Paul's point is that Jesus didn't exalt himself. He didn't. He received his exaltation from God. It wasn't self-exaltation. It wasn't self-promotion. Jesus was not in the rat race to get ahead and he certainly did nothing for vainglory of recognition from people, Right? He humbly obeyed God and was therefore exalted. Now, by contrast, one guaranteed way that you will not be exalted by God is if you exalt yourself. Guaranteed way. Second, and most essential, when in the rat race for recognition, empty glory, temporary accolades, it's important to remember that all creation will bow to only one name in the end, and guess what? It will not be yours and it will not be mine. So as I'm in this competition to get ahead, and for people to know my name, I need to remember it's ultimately futile because in the end, there will be one name on the lips of all creation. Yeah, amen. Why is it important that they bow their knees to me now when I know that in the end, they'll stop bowing and bow to Him? He's the goal. He's the goal. His name's the one that lasts forever and ever and ever. My friends in preaching school, in in my preaching class, that's really seminary, um, there's a phrase that someone told me. He recognized some pride in my life, and and just this mentor pulled me aside, and he he just looked at me. He didn't say what he saw. He just looked at me, and he just goes, live for God, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And I started to ask, what do you mean by that? And he just repeated it. Live for God preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That did an immense amount of help for my prideful soul. Because he only told me what was actually going to happen. I mean, doesn't Ecclesiastes talk about how generations come and generations go, and one generation doesn't remember the generation from the beginning, and it just keeps going in this cycle, Right? But there's one name that for all eternity will be remembered and worshipped. And it is not yours, it is not mine, it is his. And we must live now not conflicting with the truth. The way that we live now in this rat race with each other, trying to get our name ahead is actually a contradiction to the truth that we're trying to help everyone believe that in the name, his name is exalted above everyone else's. If you want people to see a glimpse of what's to come, when we get together, whose name is exalted when two or more gathered together? Whose work is talked about? Who do you fight for their glory? How zealous are you that someone be praised? And who are you zealous that would be praised? Remembered. You don't understand, I spent years in this church. You don't understand everything my hands have touched and everything I have done and all the things I put in place. I don't have to remember it because there's a God that if you did it for him, he's remembered it and your exaltation is to come. Grateful for it, reward comes later. So important for us at a church at this stage to remember that we're not asked to do anything that Jesus didn't do for us. We must serve each other like the Savior. We must talk about each other like we would imagine the Savior talking about us. We must love each other the way that the Savior loved us. Didn't he say that? Love each other as I have loved you. Did Jesus love you by backbiting you? Did Jesus love you by spreading gossip about you? then don't do it to others. It's very simple. My prayer for this church is that the attitude that we saw at VBS, where people lay down their lives night after night, lay down their self-interest for children to hear the gospel, that that would be multiplied in our church. And that we would just love each other. My friends, there are quirky people in here. Just as a side note of application, there are quirky people in here. (laughs) I won't name names. But Mike is the worst of them. There are quirky people in here. There's a bunch of weirdos who like things you don't like. There's a bunch of crazies that do things you wouldn't do. But at the end of the day, guess what? There's not one person in this room that will be not sanctified of some level of quirkiness in the end. And there's not one person in this room whose name will be remembered because they exalted it themselves. We must exalt Christ, unify in the love of Christ and in the mission of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, as long-winded of a preacher as I am, I pray, Lord, that my words have landed on their target father your spirit is the one who guides the arrow father if i have missed in any way i pray that that arrow will be shattered and forgotten and father if this sermon at any level has hit its target it is only because of your spirit and so god i pray that right now if there's anyone here lord that is struggling with these things that they will get help that they will get the gospel that they will hear christ that they will repent Father, if there's anyone here that's discouraged and broken, Father, I pray that you will help them to see that you love them dearly. Their identity is not in what they do. Their identity is in what Christ did. We thank you, God. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.